Do take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. We're following the narrative story of David. Uh, David, as he has become king, as he is now in the process of losing his kingdom under threat of his own son Absalom, who is now in rebellion against him, and seems to have galvanized the hearts and minds of all Israel against their, for their, their former king David. We've seen David make some massive mistakes. No, not mistakes. We've seen David sinning massively against God. And yet when we come to look at David, we're constantly to remind ourselves that we're not simply looking at David the man, with a personality, with character, with flaws as well as strengths, but we're also looking at the office that David holds. David's office is that of the anointed. He's typically called by God, God's son. He's called God's anointed or Messiah or Christ. He is God's anointed king. He is the covenantal king of Israel. Which means that Absalom's rebellion is not simply an aggressive campaign by a political opponent. Absalom's rebellion is in fact rebellion against God and against God's Messiah, against God's Christ. And we saw last time that, and that Absalom, David's son, appears on the scene as a kind of antichrist figure. He's determined to remove God's king and subvert God's kingdom. In many ways he reflects the, his, his father, the devil. In other words, the character of the devil is stamped on this young man, Absalom. A lot of things we'd like to know about Absalom, but all we discover about him in the story is that he is a liar, a deceiver, a murderer, a destroyer, and an accuser. All of those are features of Satan. In other words, as we see David on the move, as we see him leaving Jerusalem behind, rejected by the people there, as we see him now being hounded by Absalom and his forces, we are meant to imagine that David represents Jesus. He represents Israel. We see Israel and Jesus going now into exile, being banished, as it were, from the holy city. Israel, you remember, will one day in the future be banished eastwards, the direction that David is going in, eastwards towards Babylon, banished from Jerusalem and Judah. Jesus will be banished from the city and strung up outside the city wall. David is representing both. But he's also representing the church because David represents the people of God. In the book of Revelation, this idea of leaving and being banished out into the desert, into the wilderness, is used as a metaphor for the place of safety. The wilderness is a place of safety from the ravages of Antichrist and Satan as he chases and hounds the people of God. Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon, standing for the devil, saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is the people of God, the church, who had given birth to a male child, that is the Messiah, and the woman is given uh, the ability to fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she would be nourished by God and cared for there. 
In many ways, that picture that we find in Revelation descriptive of what God's going to do for His people in times of tribulation and attack is pictured, captured in the story of David in this chapter here. Now in chapter 15, we saw David finding friends as he left. Here in chapter 16, we find him finding enemies or meeting enemies. Sometimes they don't appear as an enemy, but they act like an enemy. Let me show you this. First of all, we look at this man, Ziba. And here we find a man who is prepared to use David when he's down. Ziba is a servant of Mephibosheth. You may not remember the name Ziba, but you've met him before if you've been coming here with any regularity. You may remember the name Mephibosheth. Just try saying that with false teeth. Not that I've got false teeth, but if I had, it would be very hard to say Mephibosheth. And uh, bless him. Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. So he belongs to the old clan that was in power. He belongs to the old regime. And Ziba was the servant of Saul, the king, who has been dethroned. He is a servant now of Mephibosheth. And I want to tell you ahead of time, Ziba does not like being the servant of the grandson of Saul. The story is, and it's recorded earlier on, that David had been kind to Mephibosheth. Normally when a king takes power, he gets rid of all the opposition. He just, you know, he would just massacre all the family of the previous dynasty so that nobody knew their their names anymore. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he remembers that he'd made this covenant and promise with Jonathan the son of Saul, that he would care for his family. And he had asked if there were any of his family left. And he discovered this man, Mephibosheth, who had been crippled and whose lands had been taken away from him, confiscated because he belonged to the old regime. And David, in great generosity, in covenant love, in steadfast love, had restored his lands, had given him title to his estates once more, and had appointed Ziba as the man to manage the estates of Mephibosheth. Now you know the story. I hope you're with me here. There's lots of names for you to remember. I know it's a Sunday morning, but at least it's not the nine o'clock service. You have had more time to rest and be sharp and be able to take all this in. All I do at nine o'clock is massage their sleep time and and help them get through it. So Ziba is the servant of Mephibosheth. And he turns up. Here's David. He's leaving the city. He's gone up the Mount of Olives. He's going down the other side of the Mount of Olives. He's heading towards the River Jordan and the desert beyond and safety, safekeeping from Absalom and Absalom's forces. When this guy, Ziba, comes out of the city of Jerusalem and he brings gifts to David. He brings donkeys. We don't know how many. It says a couple in the ESV, but actually in the original, it could be a lot more. He brings donkeys. He brings bread and summer fruit. He brings wine and he brings them to the king. David wants to know what all this, what's all this about? Ziba says to the king, well, 
I, I knew you were on the run and I knew that you would need transportation, so I brought some donkeys. That's what the donkeys are for, David, in case you didn't know. The donkeys are for transportation. And I brought food, foods for eating, David, and I knew your men would be hungry. Wine is if you really get down in your spirits out there in the desert, the wine will cheer you up and give you a good heart. Praise the Lord for that. So he comes and he says, here they are. These are my gifts. There's no strings attached. They're just a token of my support for you, David. Now, David's immediately suspicious. Why isn't Mephibosheth here bringing these things to him? After all, the food is most likely his, and the wine is most likely his, and the donkeys are most likely his. Why is it that Ziba is here on his own? So he asks him uh, uh, where Mephibosheth is. And it's here we see why Ziba is there. Ziba unfolds the reason because what he wants to do is he wants to blacken the name of his master Mephibosheth. Look at verse 3. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. In other words, Ziba is saying, I'm here because I'm still loyal to you. Mephibosheth isn't here because he's decided he has a better chance of being reinstated to his kingship that he didn't get, but because he's related to Saul, he reckons that Absalom will give him the kingship, and so he's hanging around in Jerusalem in order to get the kingship there. He's being disloyal to you, David. Now, there's a sense in which when you read that, you think to yourself, look, Absalom has just raised an army He has just had himself pronounced king over Israel. He has all the hearts of Israel in his hands. He has never been as popular in his entire life. He's able to ride through the kingdom with his hair blazing in the background. You you wanted that. People were saying, can we have a rerun of the hair? He's going through Jerusalem with the hair blazing, uh, his great hair blazing behind him. And Absalom, is no way Absalom was ever going to give the kingdom to Mephibosheth. Ziba is barefaced lying to David. What Ziba is doing is he's trying to ingratiate himself with David because he knows that the outgoing regime can do something for him. What can the outgoing regime do? It can give him title to the lands he always wanted. Ziba's been thinking to himself, why should I manage the estates when I could own the estates? And so he's He's just playing the angle here. He's coming to David and he's saying to David, you know, I know you're down, David. I know here you are with your royal retinue. You're the king. These are your men. But I see you don't have anything to ride, David. So here's some donkeys for your men to ride. And you're the king and this is your royal retinue. But David, I see you've no food to eat. Here's some food for you to eat, David. And David, I notice you have no wine to drink. So the old way of living, you know, you've been reduced to coffee. David, here's some wine for you to drink, David. And did you know, did you know the man that you had blessed, the man that used to sit at your table, that you invited to be part of your royal retinue all the time back in Jerusalem, Mephibosheth, do you know that he is sold out to the enemy? Did you know that, David? 
And what I want you to see is each one of these things, each one of these things that he does and says are meant to discourage David all the more. They're bringing him down. They are, they're attacking David's self-confidence. They're attacking his sense of who he is. The king without transportation, the king without food, the king without wine, the king who's being abandoned by old friends. Do you see what he's doing? He's trying to undermine David's sense of being. And he's also trying to disinherit his master and further his own position. Ziba is this kind of guy. You don't want, you don't want people like Ziba on your side. You see, Ziba reckoned that David was finished. How do I know that? Because he reckoned David would never ever be able to talk to Mephibosheth to find out what really had kept him from coming to see David. You can read about that in chapter 19. This man reckoned David was finished. And there's a sense in which he wanted to communicate that to David. He was gloating over this because David had not let him keep those lands to himself. He hated this. And so as he was taking the taking the action that he's taking in order to use David while he's down and before he gets out of the way because he knows that if a king gives you the title to the land, that's yours, even if a new regime comes into place. Now I want to tell you that there is a disease called Zebaism. <laughs> Zebaism is a terrible thing when you see it in action. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, gives an illustration of this. He talks about the Continental Army that, as you know, wintered in Valley Forge, just outside the city here. And in that first winter, the clothes and blankets of the men were so threadbare that they had to stay awake at night unless they would, in case they would freeze to death overnight. Not only that, but they were on the verge of starvation. The whole of that winter, they were on the verge of starvation. And you wonder, how was it that the Continental Army got to that kind of position? And here was the answer. All the farmers around Philadelphia had decided that actually it was a better deal to sell their produce to the British who were holed up in Philadelphia to get it for hard cash rather than George Washington's promises. That's Zebaism. Why were the men threadbare? Why were their clothes threadbare? Because the, the clothing merchants of Boston had decided it was more profitable for them to sell their cloth to the British garrison in Boston for an amazing 1,000 or 1,800% more than the going price. And Zebaism took over, and the Continental Army suffered. And there were hundreds of other people through the colonies who made Zebas, were Zebas who hoped to make a buck at other people's expense. Zebaism, when you see it, is the opportunity that you grasp to promote yourself at other people's cost. Zebaism is when you make other people look bad to make yourself look good. Zebaism is whenever you're willing to do whatever it takes 
even when it hurts someone else or puts someone else down to ruin and ruin someone else's reputation or prospects in order to advance your own. Zebaism is present when the only way that you can defend your point is to rubbish other people. Zebaism is present when you offer friendship to someone and the only way you can think to ingratiate yourself into those other people's friendship is to point your finger at their friends and be, do a destruction job on the reputation and character of the people, the other people who were their friends. That's what Ziba is doing here. And yet in the amazing providence of God, if you look at the end of the passage we read in verse 14, in the amazing providence of God, even though Ziba comes with the wrong motives, even though he comes with the wrong idea, even though he's looking out for himself, even though he gets what he wants in the end, at this point, at least in the story, God uses his wrong motives and his bad motives. He uses these things to provide David with the donkeys he needs and the food and wine that he needs in order that when they get to the wilderness the next day and they've crossed the Jordan into the desert, they are able to lay a table and have a feast together. In other words, God uses this covert enemy, uses him to provide for David at a time when he needs him. That's what God does, you see. God does that. He uses even those who've got it in for you. He uses those who are out to get you, those who will use you when you're down. He'll even use them. He will use them to do you good and to bring a blessing. Well, the second character in the story, do you notice this character called Shammai? Well, this man is, there's nothing covert, subtle, or anything about this man, Shammai. No, no, nothing at all. Remember, David is down. I want to just underline, David is down. He is way down. In fact, there have been signs in the previous text that he is suffering from depression. Remember, he's down because things are going wrong for him. Nathan had said, your baby will die. The baby died. Nathan had said, somebody is going to come and they're going to take advantage of your wives. And that was about to happen. Nathan had said, your family will turn against you. Now he is Absalom, his own son, in rebellion against him. He was really down. Now along comes Shemai. He doesn't disguise anything. He comes along and he comes along the road and here's David and his men walking down the road. Shemai stands at the street corner and as they're passing by, he is with one hand throwing dirt on them and with the other hand he's throwing rocks at them. You just get this picture in your head. It's absolutely ridiculous. But get it into your head, imagine it for a moment. There he is standing there throwing rocks, throwing dirt. Throwing rocks, throwing dirt. Soon he's throwing curses. Cursing David up and down. You're a bloodthirsty man. You're a bad man. Get away from here. Look at verse 7. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. And he, he brings the curse of God upon him. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Here's a man, you see, who's kicking David when David is down. He's putting the boot in there and he is giving it to him. And he's pressing all the right buttons in everything that he says. He's throwing rocks as if to say, this is what you deserve, David. You deserve to be stoned to death. Stoned to death. That's what the law requires. 
He's doing that symbolically as well as if the army passes by as he emphasizes it. I want you to know something about this guy. Shimei here, he's got his facts all wrong. David was not responsible for the death of the family of Saul. He had absolutely nothing to do with the death of Saul or Saul's family. In fact, he had made it quite clear that he wanted not to retaliate against the, the previous royal family. In fact, Mephibosheth, the previous story, is a reminder of what he had done for one of Saul's grandchildren, Mephibosheth. David had not in any way done what this man Shemai is accusing him of doing. But three times he makes the charge. You see, you say it often enough. What was it somebody said in a debate recently? Five children. And they got their message through just by repeating things over and over again. I think that's absolutely right. My kids did the same. If you say it often enough and often enough and often enough, maybe you'll make it true. He lies three times as he repeats these things. And what he's doing is, you see, and you know what this is like. You're at your lowest ever. You are, the supports have been knocked out from under you. Life has thrown you a curveball. You feel as if you've fallen into a pit. You feel as if everything is against you. And then along comes Shimei, or Sheila, or Sham. By Sham, I mean the kind of Sham in Casablanca. Play it again, Sham. That's Sham. And they come along, and I'm glad you got that. Nine o'clock, they weren't so good. Uh, you come along, and they, they, this is what they're doing, what this man does here. You're down, they kick you. When you're, you're down, they bring up all the things you've done or haven't done, and they throw them at you. This kind of person is the first person to beat your door. You've been successful. You've had a fall. They're the first person at your door to gloat over your fall. They've come to hit you over the head with it, to unload double-barreled shotguns of it in your face. This man, Shimei, is a real loser. Chuck Colson says he's a right royal pain in the neck. He's a third-rate klutz. This man is not a good man. And there he is, throwing his rocks, throwing the dust, calling down curses on David. And we come to the third character in the story. He's actually a friend of David, but what, what we discover is that he actually is a potential enemy of David. Because if there's somebody there ready to use you when you're down, and there's somebody else there ready to kick you when you're down, there's always someone around who's ready to lecture you when you're down. That is, someone who's got the bright idea what to do in the situation. Do you, do you know those kind of people? They'll always give you advice. They'll always give you advice. And, and so it was the same here. Abishai who's a brother of Joab, a uh, person we've met. He's a son of Zeruiah, and uh, he's one of David's personal guards. Abishai said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Now, you see, you have to, you have to give it to Abishai. I mean, he, he believes in straightforward talking. He's direct. A bit excessive, maybe a tad excessive, and you know, maybe a bit over the, 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 the top here. But he's straightforward. He has a solution to this problem. He's this man throwing rocks, throwing curses. Well, the best thing for you to do, David, is let me slice and dice him. That's what I'd like to do. I don't, you know, chop his head off, maybe chop his hands off, maybe just chop him all up all together, and that'll be the end of that. No more Shemai, no more of this stuff that you're having to deal with, David. I mean, that was a solution, you have to admit. 
Abishai did have a point. Here's what the Abishais in your life and mine sound like. They're the people who come along, tell you when you're down or think, you know, things are going bad, and they come and they say, you know, you shouldn't just take this line down. You should fight this. You should sue the pants off these people, what they're doing. If only you had spoken up, if only you said this and this and this, if only you put the boot in and said, you know, done something about it, if only you'd stood up to them, only you this or that and the other thing, these are the people who come along and they're full of all kinds of bright ideas. Whether they're good ideas or not, they just think they're right and they can tell you what to do. Fight back. Stand up for yourself. You know these kind of people. You recognize their reactions. It comes from friends and advisors. Sometimes it comes by spontaneous generation from your own heart and mind. Fight back. Hit back. So, WWDD, what would David do? <laughs> it's at this point, David does an amazing thing. Look at verse 10. The king said, what have I to do with you, sons of Zeruiah? In other words, I know you boys. And by the way, if you read, if you read the book of Samuel, you'll soon find out more about these boys. These boys, every one of them, seem to carry a chip on their shoulder the size of China. They were always ready for a fight. They, by the way, they had a bit of a thing. This man, Abishai, had a bit of a thing for this man, Shimei here, because Shimei appears again in the story in chapter 19. After David has won the war and he's come back home and he's back as king, Shimei comes out of the woodwork and he comes up to David. And this time he's not throwing stones. This time he's not throwing dirt. This time he's crawling on his hands and knees and he's saying to David, I was wrong to do what I did before. Not only that, he said, but I have sinned against God in doing what I did before. Nabashai speaks up, and he says to David, Just let me slice and dice them now, David. <laughs> it's been a while. I could do it this time. Let me do it this time, David. Please, please, just let me lop off his, his head. Same thing. I mean, the guy just had one answer. You know, one answer fits all. That was the kind of mentality of this man. Well, let me tell you something about Shimei for a moment. Shimei represents bad theology. In the nations surrounding Israel, uh, there were, life was dominated by a fear of, of curses. You could impose a curse on, on the, the next tribe or the next family or the guy who crossed the street. People were superstitious. They were afraid because they believed that these words, these curse words, when you spoke curses, that you actually were able to make the circumstances happen, that your words actually created the reality that you spoke of. People were terrified. When you look at the nations round about Israel, you find all kinds of anti-curse rituals in order to get out from under some curse that had been spoken somewhere in the past on you or on your family. You don't find any of that. You don't find any of that in Israel. None of that. This man, Shimei, had actually adopted that pagan idea, not the Israelite idea. In the Israelite idea, God was sovereign. In Israelite idea, God ruled in providence over the world. What really was to the business was not the curses that men called down, but the curse of God. And do you notice that David corrects his theology, but picks up his point? Good verse 10. What have I to do with you if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, 
Who then shall say, why have you done so? Now I want you to notice what David does here. This is true greatness. Do you see, he is refusing to take offense. He is for once in absolutely complete control of himself. He does not go off and nurse his injured pride. He doesn't shout back at the guy in self-defense. He resists the temptation to strike back in retaliation. Instead, he constructively accepts the possibility that the Lord, in his providence, is speaking through this idiot. Forgive my Hebrew. This idiot, Shemai. He says, I know the man's ridiculous. I mean, who stands at the side of the road when an army's walking past and stones the army? I mean, really? You know, just turn the machine gun on him, that's it. Or slice him. You don't do that. He is, he's just an idiot. But here is David and he says, you know, his facts are wrong. I had nothing to do with the death of Saul and his family. His curses are worthless because we don't believe in curses in Israel. It's God's judgment that's the important thing. But he has a point. He has a point. Because I am guilty of blood guilt. I have been responsible for the death of a man, Uriah, a Hittite. And as he reflects on it, he begins to say to himself and to his men, listen, the possibilities are that God has used this idiot to get my attention, to remind me that I am a sinner in need of the mercy of God. That's precisely what he says. I want you to look at verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong. Now here I'm going to correct the ESV again. I'm sorry, ESV. But I'm going to do it. The word for wrong there is good. That's, that's, that's good. But actually the Hebrew word is iniquity. The iniquity. And uh, the verse should really read like this. It may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and repay good to me. The specifics of the man's charge were wrong. But there was an element of truth. David knew his own heart. In fact, David is thinking to himself, if you only knew my heart, you would realize there is iniquity there. You see something that's going on in David's head. Listen to, listen to his argument. He looks at himself, and he's the courage to label his own behavior. It's iniquity. He is a sinner. He's not going to look at the splinter in this other man's eye because he's got a log coming out of his own eye, and he knows it. He looks to himself. We need to pray regularly, brothers and sisters, that God would keep us authentic before him. Secondly, he looks at his critic. And he says, you got the facts wrong, and what you were doing was wrong and inadequate and would be absolutely unproductive, but there's going to be no retaliation, no revenge, no repercussions, because I see God behind what you're doing. Chuck Colson, sorry, Chuck Swindoll says, the humble forgiven make good forgivers. The humble forgiven make good forgivers. If you know you've been pardoned by God, that should make you willing and quick to pardon others for their offenses against you. He looks at himself. He looks at his critic. He looks to God. And he says, you know, I am full of iniquity, but God is used to dealing with iniquity. God is used to dealing with sin. He is sovereign, and he is therefore able to show mercy. 
And so David rests his case on the mercy of God. He applies for mercy from God. He says, if God has his curse on me, God also knows what to do about that curse. Now we know what God was going to do about the curse over David, don't we? Paul explains it to us in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, as David walks on after this little event, as he walks on with his men down towards the Jordan, and Shimei walks along beside them throwing rocks as they go, all the way along that road, that's a long way to be throwing rocks let me tell, at these people. It doesn't stop when David talks to him, by the way. It keeps going until they get to the Jordan, across the Jordan, over to the wilderness. As he walks down along the road, feeling these rocks from time to time hitting him, he's being taught the gospel. He's being reminded of the gospel. He's being reminded that one is going to take the curse away from him. One will take it away from him. So he looks to his critics, and he looks at himself, he looks to God, and he looks to his friend, and he verbalizes forgiveness, and he says to his friend, don't touch him. Don't touch him. God is the great forgiver. We can forgive those who are against us. Now I want you to look at David in this whole scene. Let's back off for a moment. Remind you of what's happened. David has been rejected by the people as their king. David has had to leave the city. He's had to go down over the brook Kedron and climb the Mount of Olives. He's now on his way away from the city, rejected by the people. He's been betrayed by a friend. I want you to see a parallel between David's story and Jesus' story. Rejected by his people. Betrayed by a friend. Leaving the city, going up the Mount of Olives, later to be crucified outside the city walls. Thereby taking a curse. A curse. The curse of God against sin on himself. David's curse, your curse, mine, on himself. And as he goes, you remember, as they come to arrest him. There's an almost a rerun of the story of David here. As they come to arrest him, one of them says to Jesus, Lord, shall we strike him with a sword? Do you remember that? And one of them did strike the servant of the high priest, Luke tells us, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and the man was healed. And when he was scorned, you remember when he was at his lowest? He was at his lowest when he was at his highest. Jesus was at his lowest when he was pinned to the cross, unable to help himself, naked, hanging there between heaven and earth, bleeding and dying. And people were scorning and mocking him and throwing insults at him. And as he's hanging there, do you remember? The scripture tells us he could have called 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world and set him free. He could have nuked the whole planet. But he hangs on. He takes their scorn. When people said to him, why don't you come down out of the cross? Save yourselves and us. He refuses to come down out of the cross. Instead he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Peter says of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When they reviled, he did not revile in return. When, they, when he suffered, he did not threaten them, but continued entrusting himself to him. Who judges justly. 
At this moment in this story, David the fallen, the fallen hero, points us to Jesus, our perfect hero, the perfect sin bearer, curse bearer, wrath bearer, judgment bearer. You see, when this man Shimei was talking to David, David's conscience had sin on it. But he endures. When they're scorning and pouring their mockery on Jesus, Jesus has sin on him, but not on his conscience. He has it on his shoulders. He has your sin and mine on his shoulders as he hangs on the cross. He is bearing it. And he is acting in your place. He's acting on your behalf. Bearing sin and sorrows rude in my place. Condemned. He stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Father, we pray that today you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to respond in love towards the Lord Jesus, our great Savior and our dear Redeemer. We want to love him. We want to serve him. We want him to be glorified. We thank you that in your mercy you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Out of your goodness and grace you turn even the wrath of men to praise you. We pray that you would draw near to us today and give us that foretaste of heaven that we long for and ask for in his name. Amen.